You're tuned into This Side of Reality on Totally Radio, a Brighton Digital Festival podcast about digital culture, art, and the human. Presented by CJ Thorpe and created by Vasil Jagalov, Brighton Digital Festival and Totally Radio. You're listening to This Side of Reality, the Brighton Digital Festival podcast about tech-led culture, art, and the human. Over three episodes, we'll explore the unexpected realities of digital culture and we'll try to burst our own digital bubble. And tonight, as well as recording for the podcast, we are broadcasting live with an audience on totallyradio.com from 68 Middle Street in Brighton, kindly hosted by Clearleft. Welcome, everyone. I'm Chris Thorpe Tracy, and joining me in conversation to explore issues arising from the new digital underclass, let's meet a panel we've got here of four experts. Please could you introduce yourself and give us a brief top-line idea of what you do, uh, maybe starting with you, Simon. Hello, everyone. I'm Simon. I'm the CEO of Maker Club, and um, we teach kids invention, so primarily 3D printing, programming, and electronics, and... In February this year, we started um, a programme called Bright Sparks, which um, teaches those who, who couldn't afford it um, otherwise, basically. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Richard Danny Buick. I work for a charity called Citizens Online. Uh, we work around the UK in different communities, helping people and organisations and those communities get the benefits of online services and digital technology. Hi everyone, I'm Mandy Crandale. I work for an organisation called Possibility People. We're a charity working across Sussex supporting disabled people, anybody with a long-term health condition, mental health condition, older people, to live more independently. My role is all around employment, so helping people build skills and confidence to get back to work and working with employers around taking people on and supporting people with a health condition at work. Hi everybody, my name is Lawrence Hill. I'm Festival Director of Brighton Digital Festival, which is... uh, month-long exploration of digital culture now in its seventh year so we're launching officially next thursday thanks ever so much we've got i reckon about 40 minutes so let's see how far we can get our starting point is that we're all online and have constantly evolving digital skills and experiences digital interaction is becoming well even more central to our lives and that includes for example accessing essential public services and our most important business and social interactions, which means social inclusion and digital inclusion are increasingly merging. Inside the bubble, for someone as privileged as me, it's hard to imagine people not being as casually and constantly and competently online as I think I am. But of course, they're all out there. So I would like to start by asking what you, in the context of your work, understand digital exclusion to mean. Yeah, I I think digital exclusion for us, I'd say it it means anyone who's not getting the benefits of of what's available online and what's available in terms of digital technology. And broadly speaking, I think there's three kind of key barriers that stop people um, getting those benefits. One is connectivity and actually, you know, having a connection to the internet. The second is around accessibility. So do people have the equipment or have they got a place where they can get online 
Um, and the third thing is around skills and confidence. And so if people don't have the skills or confidence to then use the connection or the equipment that they've got, then that presents a block. And all those three things mean that people can't get the benefits of that digital life that we take, take for granted. Um, I think for us, uh, the, the kind of uh, gradual realisation that digital is now the substrate of all of our lives. Um, and this is something that's changed over the course of the festival, really. So over the last seven years, this has changed. And as you say, the kind of access to um, online spaces has become increasingly important for people, you know, in, to enable them to you know, find cheaper deals for their electricity, to, uh, you know, all those kind of things that are only available if you can get online. Um, f- for me, it goes a little bit further than that as well. And I think our interest as a festival is, you know, we're not experts like these guys at getting people online, for example. But, you know, one of the things that we are interested in is as digital becomes this substrate of everybody's life, you know, our future is being created for us by some tech bros in Silicon Valley. And, you know, they're not paying attention to probably most of the people in this room, they're certainly not paying attention to anybody that isn't online. So I think, you know, in order to enable people to be part of that discussion is a really crucial bit of um, this discussion. Uh, Yeah, I guess I would agree with with all of those things. I think from our perspective at Maker Club, we've, we've, like when we started the company, it was very much looking forward to the next five to ten years. So um, I've come from a, a kind of a, quite a cutting edgy background and so we see in the startup world at least a lot of uh, talk of big data and IoT and it's if you look at the kids who are learning this stuff the ones with the Raspberry Pis and the Arduinos which is the kind of world that that, that I sit in it's almost always the kind of the children of uh, kind of middle class or coders and so the kind of thing that I'm concerned about is that there's there's already a divide now but actually with automation of jobs and all those sorts of things in five, ten years, it, it'll be, you know, enormous, the difference between those who can program microcontrollers and all the, the new things coming out and those who've, who've never seen them before. Yeah, I guess we'd have kind of a broadly similar view to the other guys, but where disabled people are concerned, there's kind of a double-edged sword that technology can be really amazing in terms of giving extra access and support, but equally not being able to use the technology can be a barrier to getting access and support. So... Um, we will work with people to have the skills to use the digital stuff and also the confidence to be able to go to the place to use the digital equipment. It's all well and good teaching someone to use a digital service so that they can then go to the library and use that service, but if they haven't got the mobility or the personal resilience to be able to regularly go and do that without support to get there, then the skills still can't be used. So there's all of that that we'd like to take into account as well. It seems to me that there are almost like it's different ends of the same challenge. It's at one end, it's to do with maybe coding or the comfort with coding and the the digital literacy of just being able to uh, feel confident enough to take these leaps. But but then at the other end, you're literally talking about physically getting into a space where you can access a computer. Um, So is there something um, about the demographics of digital exclusion, I might throw this to Richard, about whole communities that are being excluded. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's something that was kind of said in the, you know, when we were talking before about do we have a, 
a preconceived idea that it's it's all older people who are digitally excluded, and that's you know that's this big homogenous uh, group or uh, a collective underclass, as you sort of said, you know, a, um, a digital underclass. I, I don't really think that's the case. I think, from our perspective, it maybe perhaps feels slightly elusive because. Ex- the exclusion happens amidst other things that are going on. Simply put, wherever there's social inequality, you find digital inequality as well. So whatever the line in is, whether it's education or money, um, finance, uh, mobility, disability, those social inequalities are happening and that's where you also find the, the, the digital inequality route through. So presumably then reaching out can take a lot of different forms Um, maybe as a good example i'll go back to lawrence now lawrence setting up brighton digital festival this year Mm -hmm. you did something which the bdf hadn't done before which was you sat down and wrote a manifesto looking largely at access and reaching beyond the bubble of the digital community in brighton out to other communities Um, can you say a little bit about why you decided to do that and also um, how, you, how you got your head in the right place <laughs> to write it. Um, it's really interesting because the manifesto itself, I think, as you alluded to earlier, is quite simple. Um, but that kind of belies the fact that it took six months of kind of hewing thousands of words down to, to what it is now. Um, we're in a kind of position at the moment, it's like a unique position where... Uh, Digital Festival, for those who are unaware of its history, has been held by a series of organisations in the city and we're now completely independent. So we're independent of everyone else's agenda. So it seemed like a really good time to think about what the festival's for. Um, And actually it's a fairly straightforward and quite simple question, but it's quite complicated when you start thinking about it. But one of the crucial things for us is that it shouldn't just be for... um, people that work in digital in the centre of the city um, or people that work in arts and culture in the centre of the city, that, you know, we have a duty and a responsibility to think beyond that bubble. Um, And that's very easy to say. And it's not something that you can fix overnight. So kind of we're in this for the long haul, really. It's not like, well, it didn't work this year, so next year we're going to do something else. Um, you know, our commitment is to kind of reach everybody in the city in some way. And this is a growing festival, but also it is still a niche thing. It covers a specific, well, kind of a specific subculture, but certainly a specific interest, although that interest as well is growing in the city and in the, in the wider area. Um, was it easy to, to kind of start pushing this through or did you experience barriers to that? Um, I don't think there are barriers, uh, well, there are barriers, but there are our own kind of lack of knowledge and lack of um, uh, kind of expertise in that area, which is why, you know, we need to work with people like Trustford Developing Communities, who we're starting to work with, who, you know, we've started having a conversation with possibility people. So it's like, you know, um, these guys, Citizens Online, are doing an event during the festival. So we have to recognise, and you know, I say we, there are essentially two of us, myself and my colleague Melissa, who's in the audience. You know, we have to recognise what our limitations are and the fact that there are people that really know what they're doing 
and you know know how to talk to kind of audiences beyond what we're used to and as I say it's 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 a kind of long haul really. Simon you work specifically outside those bubbles already with younger people from disadvantaged backgrounds how do you see the barriers for them and and what kind of uh, work does Bright Sparks do to uh, to try and draw them in? I guess the, the the three barriers that Rich alluded to earlier are exactly the same, like accessibility and and kind of. Um, for me, I think the biggest or one of the biggest ones we saw when we did some work at Moolscombe Primary School um, was just the, the total, um, I guess, feeling of not being part of it and not. Like oh, oh I don't know how to do that and I'm, I'm, that's not that's not for me and I'm I'm not one of those people and just they like so there was there was a big kind of mental thing we had to get over with both the kids and the parents so with that one we, we worked with the like the, a parent and a kid came and we, and we sort of taught them together how to program uh, like a three D printed robotic arm and it it was amazing how like week one. They, they kind of, oh, I don't even know how to work my microwave. And then, like, week three, they were like, oh, no, you've got the server in the wrong way around. And, and they kind of, it was incredibly quick how we kind of got them from a place of, uh, like, not feeling confident at all to, okay, maybe this is possible. So that's the big, that's, like, the first barrier, I think. And then the other one for us is it's, it's kind of necessarily expensive for us to run Maker Club just because you have to, because technology it moves at such a pace to, to stay relevant and to teach relevant stuff, you have to pay people and and and, and develop and, and do research and all those sorts of things. So it's been very important for us to, to find a way to, to get money to, to pay for um, Bright Sparks, which are the kids that, that we put through for free um, uh, in Maker Club. And is that you? Do you go to the both the public and the private sector, or is that mainly working with companies? Well, interesting. We've, we found it difficult with the public because we're a limited company um, and the only reason we could exist and, and make the product was to get investment so we, we're kind of in this funny place where we're not making any profit but we are a for-profit company so public sector is no good for us really um, but luckily we've, we've kind of found a way to um, to work with with local companies who I think understand the same problems that, that we've got and who are you know sponsoring the kids to go through uh, a full year of Maker Club, and then at the end of it, we give them a laptop. So the idea is that they, we give them, we, we bring them in, give them the confidence, show them how these things work, and then give them access to the platform and a laptop, so they can go away and, um, yeah, like in theory, what they should be self. What defines these kids? What, what what is a bright spark? At the moment, it's um, we're trying to keep it very simple, but it's just someone who would otherwise love to come to Maker Club, but but just. You just cannot afford it um, and so we basically go to schools and say you know do you have someone who who would enjoy it who'd, who'd, who'd get something out of this and nine times out of ten a teacher knows exactly who who would be up for it and then um, it, it's kind of simple from there we just we just get them involved so it's primarily a, a financial barrier that they're overcoming with that support yeah but financial and I would say like it's normally the teacher can see it in the kid but the kid wouldn't necessarily, or the parent often wouldn't necessarily put themselves forward for it. Um, and certainly, like Morgan's a great example. They just they just don't they don't see the Facebook ads and go, oh, that would be perfect for my kid. It just it just doesn't register. I think quite often. Yeah, that exclusion is all pervasive in a way. They're just mm. not they're not included in 
They don't feel like they, they no. would, like it's for them. I think that's, that's one of the big things. Mandy, uh, you work with people with disabilities and long-term conditions. And are the, would you say that that is also the same set of barriers? And what do you do to overcome the barriers? Or do they have a different set of needs to do with physical access? It can be really varied because we work with people regardless of their impairment. So it could, could be a physical issue. Nine terms out of ten, it isn't. And it's something that physically they're managing, but there's other stuff going on. But in terms of the digital course we run to help people get back to work, again, we've got such a range of people coming on that from people that, for whatever reason, haven't fully engaged with the education system and haven't got those skills trying to get into work. And equally, people that have worked for a number of years, um, I can think of three or four people we've supported who've worked on construction sites all their life, had some sort of back injury, and are now having to completely start from scratch trying to work out what their career is going to look like. And are going to have to engage with digital skills in some way or another to find a job, even if they don't need to use them when they get to the job. And having never had to do that throughout their career to this point, have never developed them. So there's all sorts of reasons why people haven't necessarily got the skills that they feel they need. That sounds like a real variety of needs, like the service users that you're working with. They're all going to have different, like quite individual challenges. And uh, does that mean it's kind of different every time? Does that make it more challenging? Because they're... They aren't. For example, if you're going to uh, a group of kids in a school, as Simon is, in a way you can take the same model and roll it out again and scale it. Um, but this sounds slightly more, um, well, challenging, I guess. I guess in a way it is, but it's very much the way our organisation works that whatever service we deliver, we try and tailor it and wrap it around the person that we're working with at the time. So we'll work with a group of people on a course we'll always make sure we've got a couple of volunteers on hand if people need a little bit more one-to-one support to try and engage with the sessions. So people have the room to go at their own pace. We'll make sure there's enough to do within a session that people that are moving quite quickly can keep engaged without without getting bored. At the same time, other people that are struggling aren't going to feel like they're holding everyone else up. So we kind of develop the course each time around the people that are in it and try and make sure everyone gets what they need out of it. Yeah, so the course is kind of changing in response to that yeah absolutely and And we have post the course we always have an ongoing like a drop-in job club so it's not that people will come for a course and then oh that's the end of the support what do we do now they've got somewhere they can come every week familiar face know where they're going know the people that they're meeting practice their skills and get a bit of support if they get stuck so i'm gonna ask you this but i'll probably also throw it open to everyone i'm a i'm unfamiliar with this phrase that i suddenly learned over the course of sort of getting involved in this project and it's digital by default strategy. And uh, I wondered what if, partly if you could explain it a little bit, and maybe what effect does that kind of strategy have on the kind of people that you work with? Uh, what aspects should we, we really be considering? Okay, so to put it, I'll try and explain it as simply as I can, which may or may not go well, stop me no, if that fine. makes sense. No, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, digital by default essentially is public services stating that for anyone that wants to get in touch with them, access a service, that will be done through a digital channel. And if you cannot access them digitally, then there's going to be some sort of hiccup about getting what you need. And is that happening is that a, a lot? Good. <laughs> is, that, is that now becoming a kind of a pervasive paradigm for people? Yeah, that's really kind of the direction of travel of public services in the country at the moment. Um, it's certainly something that, as I understand it, Brighton and Hove Council are working towards at the moment. They're looking at their services to make that 
function and with universal credit coming online very soon, that is very much an online service. So people not only have to make their claim online, but they have to manage it online and be able to engage with an online journal regularly as their primary interaction with the job centre. So that's not just, have you got the skills to make an online claim and then you can do everything else as normal? That's, can you continually find somewhere that you can access the internet, where you can access this technology to access the internet with and be in the right headspace to be able to deal with all of that regularly? Wow, so that's kind of compulsory digital literacy imposed on people from outside in order to get things that are really essential for their lives. Yeah. Um, Richard, do you, do you find that that's going to be a thing for your service users as well? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, the whole digital by default agenda has been coming for some time. And even the name of this thing, you could have said it's a, you know, oh, this is a new kind of phrase. Mm. It doesn't exactly sound like the kind of thing that people created, does it? It's kind of, you know, this is a... It's a service-driven change, and ultimately where it's come from is um, a requirement or a need to make services cheaper because it costs more money to uh, provide a face-to-face service or a telephone service, and we can get, or you know, anyone can get, high numbers of transactions through when it's you know, online. So more and more public services who are feeling the crunch of the public purse squeezing down, uh, moving services online by default. So, yeah, right across the board, whether it's your uh, blue badge application or trying to work out where you're, you know, how to report a pothole or get your missed bin collected, but some of those really serious services like health services uh, and universal credit and welfare benefits are all going digital by default. So there's a huge thing happening in society and in communities about how we respond to that and how people are prepared for that and don't get caught out and left behind. Do you think that this... uh, Maybe I should ask everyone about this as well. Do you think that this is something that there is an argument for pushing back on or actually is just, from your perspectives, working kind of on the front line of something like this, is this actually a paradigm that is inevitable and we therefore embrace it and work as hard as we can to make it as inclusive as possible? What, are we, what, are, what is the best thing we can do in face of something like a shifting paradigm as universal and as all-pervasive as this that affects just everybody? Um, what would you say we can do? Maybe I'll go to Simon. Uh, I actually spent about 45 minutes on the phone to HMRC yesterday with some woman (laughs) just telling me, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. And it was the most painful thing um, I can imagine. So I I think, yeah, for me, I think that I guess it's hard to say what we should do. Like, it would be nice, obviously, to be able to get to a human on the other end of a phone or, like... I think, yeah, I very nearly threw the thing out the window yesterday. So I think, I, like, I, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. Obviously, money is the reason. Um, but, yeah, personally, you kind of feel like it, it needs to be... There needs to be a, a second option that's available. I think in some ways we're in a position to push back on that. And I think it, it's kind of an awareness thing, because I actually hadn't heard that expression, the digital, by default. It's kind of charmingly innocuous for something that's so hideous um 
But I, you know, I, I love everything being online. I love not having to talk to a person. It's great because I have that privilege. But, um, you know, I think if there's a way that we can push back against that, you know, push back against the council a little bit, then we should be doing it or at least being kind of responsible for making people understand that this thing is happening and just because you love being online and everything's great for you doesn't mean it's necessarily the case and in fact it's getting worse it's not just about this person can't get online it's actually kind of making a significant and negative impact i think there's a there's a there's a friendly pushback uh, I mean, I think, you know, society is going in this direction and I, you know, I love doing everything online as well. People can get the benefits from it, but you know, Brighton and Hove City Council and our organisation works very closely with the council. Um, and they have taken an approach of saying, look, they know they've got a duty of care here and there's an equalities duty. If they're taking services online, they've got to ensure that people who are going to struggle with that are able to access them. So, so we've been working with them as part of our approach to say, OK, well, if you're taking that, I don't know, carer's self-assessment um, process online, how do we make sure that those communities that are affected have got the skills? How do we support you to make sure the system works and it doesn't break down as soon as, as, soon as someone clicks on it for the first time? So I think, you know, a collaborative approach where organisations and public services work together to make sure that, that things are working is the right way. Is that one of the main focuses of the Digital Brighton & Hove project? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's kind of saying, look, who in the city of Brighton & Hove is helping people get online? Who's got an interest? Which organisations, like Possibility People, um, are, are, are kind of working with people out there? Let's all work together and, you know, sit in the same rooms as the council and other public services and say, look, this is what needs to happen. These are perhaps the breaks that need to go on in certain places. This is, uh, this is what we need to do collectively to make it work uh, and not fall over. And maybe the reaching out can be in both directions because at the moment it seems like you lot seem to be ahead of maybe where the public sector is, maybe you aren't allowed to say so. And if they can reach you in terms of teaching people and uh, empowering people to access it more easily, that, in, in some way, that goes towards solving the problem. Or is that, or is that too small a, a way of thinking about it? I think, fundamentally, you're always going to reach a point where when something changes, like going online, arbitrary figure, but 80% of people will manage with that quite happily, maybe need a little bit, little bit of help and support, get that help and support, and then carry on. And they're fine. But there will always be a cohort of people at the other end of that that are going to need help and support around the change. And they're the ones that I'm concerned will get missed because it's not just a light touch of, oh, look, here's a how-to guide, off you go. They will need additional help and support to access the help and support that other people are getting, if you like. And I, that's what I would push public services to really think about putting support in place for organisations such as ours and other advice and support organisations across the city to make sure that the 20% of people that do need the help are able to get it in a way that makes sense to them. So pulling back from this specific issue and thinking more broadly about digital exclusion or if we're going to call it a digital underclass that's emerging, uh, solving that challenge, which is a big, broad challenge, 
Um, what would you think would be the best things that I'm going to ask both of these, what the public sector and then what the private sector can do? So what would you think would be the best thing or have you got suggestions that we should be pushing for government, whether that's national government or local government, to do that would be the, the most useful, impactful solutions to reducing exclusion or more accurately kind of reaching out and in increasing inclusion? Uh, I'll go to Lawrence first. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. I'm going to just look over here. Um, wow, that's a tricky one. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of a, a kind of nationally, there is a con connectivity issue, um, which is something, you know, to my understanding that really only the government can address and that that's a priority that they need to have. And I'm sure Rick's probably got kind of stats to back this up, but my, that would be my understanding that there are at least 20% of people that aren't online at all. And there's another what, 20, 30% that have such poor connectivity that they might as well not be, you know. Um, so from, from a kind of globe, well, not global, but from a kind of national point of view, that seems like a, would be a big step in the right direction. But it doesn't seem to be that much of a priority for the government. Uh, yeah, just following on from that, you know, we, we work, you know, not just in Brighton and Hove, but I've been up in the highlands of Scotland doing this kind of work as well. There's people, you know, there's people out there still on dial-up, you know, there's yeah. people, uh, and, you know, we completely forget that people are just have no access at all. So there, there is connectivity issues, and I think um, there's commitments that the government's making um, around, uh, you know, a universal basic level of uh, access in terms of super fast and you know is it 10 megs or is it is it more and I'd be pushing and saying you know what what's a usable connection these days you know what we want to get people on a, on on three or four megs it's like come on we've got to make it we've got to make it much better than that so there is the connectivity thing but I also think there's something that public services generally need to do at a national level and a local uh, public service level, which is about putting the user, the user experience at the centre of how they design their services, absolutely. Because often I think service transformation, when these organisations, whether it's you know, private sector or public sector, are going online and you know, people just forget, it's that 10%, the, the 20%, those folks need to be at the centre of the design to make sure that these things work for people that they're designed for. That's, That's a really important point because there's so much aesthetics tied up with like online design. So we do get very carried away when something looks sexy or has really good kind of, kind of uh, interesting way of working. We, we kind of privilege that and often, especially someone like me in the bubble, I, I completely forget about who's maybe able to read it or who's able to utilise it because it's got some sort of complex UX going on as well. So that is a really important part of it. Um, Simon? I guess um, we, we kind of come at the problem from, from a different angle. So for me, we've, we've almost given up on like governments a little bit. Um, there's still a few good eggs uh, in kind of parliament that we, we talk to. And the, the big push for that is we want to prove that it works. And then uh, it's, it's like a very long game for us. It's, it's kind of if we can prove that we can um, actually help the attainment of 
these kids because quite often um, kids who come to make a club don't fit in at school or don't enjoy school or the rigour of it all and actually being able to just to run around and, and, and make stuff is a, is a much like preferable way of learning for them. So that's kind of one approach for us is, is for public sector is to say, okay, can we prove that it, this works? And then kind of almost the idea is to try and be a bit of a beacon of like, this is, this is what good looks like and we've made sure it works and it's not actually as expensive as you think it is and, you know, can we make more of these? And then in the private sector, I think the way we approach it is, is that um, basically the, this is the workforce of, t- of tomorrow, basically. Um, we see uh, more and more Internet of Things and big data as being a thing that if you talk to any company that's sponsored us, they'll all say that they really struggle to find um, people with the, with the skills, basically. So we're, we're, the idea is to skill people up and the, the worry was that if we're only skilling up those who are already kind of fine, then we're part of the problem, not part of the solution. So the, the point is to get companies who understand that to say, well, OK, let's bring everyone in and, and kind of make this, this available as, as possible. So that, that would be our approach. Mandy? Um, I guess for me, I definitely echo Rich's point around putting the user at the heart of the journey. That's kind of fundamental to everything we do. So would always advocate for that and really to get it right for the most complicated worst possible case scenario so if it works for the hardest person to access it if they can access it everyone else is going to be fine and nine times out of ten we do this with building design just like we do it with system design you you design it for the mainstream and you don't think about other routes into accessing it until there's a problem and then you have to redesign and rebuild and restructure. Whereas if you get it right for the hardest to help person, everyone else is only going to benefit from having a slightly more straightforward process. That's a great way of looking at it. You could almost imagine like individual examples of particularly challenging people and they could become, they could almost be held up as uh, benchmarks. And so, oh, you've got Fred over here. If Fred's on this system, it gets the Fred benchmark and everyone's happy. That's brilliant. Um, what do you think about working with the private sector as well? Because it, um, uh, they are just a huge increasing part of it where government is shrinking. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, obviously, I do a lot of work with employers. It's really rare now that I see a job description come out in a job advert that doesn't want computer skills, regardless of what that job is going to be doing. So there's something that needs to be thought about with that. I don't quite know what yet. But equally, I think if employers and businesses are demanding these skills, then, as you're saying, why not invest in the development of them, in making sure that people have got the skills that they want to employ? So I'd certainly open up conversations with the private sector with that. It's not something we've done yet, but it's a great idea. You would be into it in principle. Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, do any of you have thoughts about the uh, ways we could encourage the private sector or ways it works well or doesn't work with the private sector? I, I think there's a kind of, you know, talking about private sectors, you're talking about businesses that are trying to make money. And I think there's a kind of altruistic argument of, like, around diversity is like you should do this because it's nice. It's a nice thing to do. Um, but there's actually an economic argument is like if you want to make products that work, 
then you need to have a range of people in your organisation because you need the different perspectives. You know, you need the different skin tones. I mean, it even comes down to that. You know, we've all seen the example of the, the tap, the automatic tap that doesn't work if you've got less, you know, if you've got darker than white skin. You know, that's insane that that actually made it out into the world. But that's entirely because, you know, I, I, I don't know, I don't know the company that made it, but my guess would be that it's 100% white. So, you know, those are the kind of issues, you know, alongside that it's a nice thing to do, that there is actually an economic benefit. So in some sense, you're making a business case for... for it's not just the service users that benefit, it's the businesses themselves. Exactly, and it's kind of depressing to have to do that. <laughs> but, you know, if that's the language that you have to use, then that's the language you have to use. Sure, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to drive sales via a website and your website is so shoddily built that people with disabilities, visual or physical impairments or, you know, can't use that site to buy the things that they want in their life then you're excluding a huge amount, you know, not only are you excluding people, which is bad morally, but you're excluding people from the opportunity of spending money with you, you know. So, that, so there is a, there is a, a you know, a, a sales argument for it, if you like. I was going to, and I think I will still kind of ask a couple of questions about a slightly more global view of this, but it, it, when I was, as you were speaking, I did keep wanting to ask about Brexit and about the d- def- direction of things at the moment in the UK. Now, I'm aware some of you may not be able to speak about this because you're representing organisations or companies and you don't want to tie yourself to a position or anything, but um, it, uh, do any of you want to comment on whether Brexit might be useful for this as a positive step because it, uh, in, the work, in some people's views it will kind of give us more independence and control of different kind of legislation and also the way businesses behave? Or would any of you like to say something on the opposite line where um, it's uh, a negative thing because uh, it's going to cause a lot of problems in terms of the way that we want communication all to be very connected? Or maybe it doesn't have an impact. Uh, I heard, it's kind of a bit rumour mill, but um, I heard through um, the grapevine that the the effect Brexit's had on government positions and some of those things is that they're kind of appealing more to a, a bit more of a Middle England stance and it's less money is going to be made available for tech um, and ed tech, which is, which is where we sit. So from our perspective, it's, it's, it's negative just because it's kind of, I think the kind of the UKIP vote um, has kind of pulled government in that direction and, and there's just, as, as, from what I've heard, there will be less money available. So uh, it's all, yeah, it's all... So, it's very obvious. It's very hard to tell. Yes, moment, but uh, yeah, uh, Richard, I, I think also um, I'd have to call the kind of the, the negative angle at the moment. You know, a lot of the communities that we work with uh, might be in receipt of European funding for things like rural communities development, uh, which might be economic development funds, or it might be um, uh, employment skills funding that's come through to disadvantaged areas, and particularly those deep rural areas like North Wales or Scotland or, you know, some of those places in England down in Cornwall. And it's like when that funding goes, there's big question marks. You know, we're talking to partners at the moment in different areas that they're kind of going, right, a couple of years' time, we're a bit worried about what's going to happen. 
and specifically where we're going to get any money from to support you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about uh, a, a slightly more worldwide picture and thinking globally. One thing I've found purely anecdotally and through travel and through interacting outside the developed world is a slightly counterintuitive discovering, which is I find often if I'm in somewhere that I think of as a developing country or city compared to fully developed the United Kingdom, actually a lot of either facilities or the way people interact digitally is ahead of where we're at. So, for example, in, in many countries in um, sub-Saharan Africa, they are already very used to financial transactions without bank accounts on their mobile phones. They've been doing it for years, whereas it, in the United States, for example, it still takes a week to, to cash a cheque. So in some ways, is there a big opportunity if one can, if one can get through the barriers of digital exclusion to maybe equalise the world a little bit? Or is actually that a kind of slightly romantic thought process? And really, if we start thinking globally, are we just looking at billions more digitally excluded people and the same shifting paradigm? I think um, there's a, a perception that the, the, the internet is global and borderless, and it's not um, at all. Um, you know, the reality is that you, you're talking about the, the money transfer thing in, in sub-Saharan Africa. My understanding is that that happens through SMS. So it's not, it doesn't rely on connectivity to the internet because I think the connectivity rate in Africa is some, somewhere below 50%. Um, and the, the reality is as well that the, the, the kind of online world as we understand it is very northern and it's very western in its aesthetics, its ideas, its culture, its language. And if you're outside of that, then it becomes very difficult you know this is a different form of of kind of uh, lack of digital privilege that you do not see yourself represented i mean i'm working with this artist called tabitha Rezaire, who's a south african artist she and a group of other artists decided that they wanted to put some articles on wikipedia about african art uh, contemporary African art um, and Wikipedia is this great example of something that's open and etc they were all rejected because of the language that they used and it just wasn't felt that it was appropriate so you know this this kind of sense that you know there is this global borderless thing is not true unless you're in the north and the west essentially yeah, so it's still a kind of uh, an a romanticising born of privilege yeah, of it's turning it's, up. It's and a kind of form of colonialism as well because, you know, all domain registration, 95% of that happens in the North and the West. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, We're it, it goes across the time. board. So rather than throw that question out to everyone, could I just ask you really quickly, um, how can people find you and support your work if that's what you want them to do? How, um, uh, how can people find you, Mandy? Uh, so we are online www.possibilitypeople.org.uk or you can give us a call on 01273 Brilliant, thank you. Simon? Uh, probably the easiest way to get a hold of us is um, makerclub.org and I think if anyone wants to help, the, the biggest thing would be like more sponsorships for, for, for Bright Sparks Kids. That's great, um, well, the easiest way to find us is to walk into um, or get into your local library because we've got presence there. Um, but we are also online at www.digitalbrightonandhove.org.uk. Right. 
Thank you. And Lawrence? Uh, so Brighton Digital Festival, you'll see our posters around with brightondigitalfestival.co.uk. And that's all we have time for, unfortunately. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, thank you to our four panellists, Simon Riley, Mandy Crandale, Richard Denyer-Bowick and Lawrence Hill. Thank you so much for contributing. That was great. This Side of Reality, episode two, will focus on mental health and well-being and is called Not Just a Hat Rack. We'll be taping it on the 21st of September. So if you're not already going to She Says Brighton or going to see Holly Herndon out at Falmer, it'd be lovely to see you down here. Um, you can find free tickets at eventbrite.com. I'm Chris Thorpe-Tracy. This Side of Reality is curated and produced by Vasil Dazlov and Brighton Digital Festival with support from Daniel Nathan at Totally Radio. And we were hosted here at 68 Middle Street by Clear Left. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming along. And thank you very much, everyone who helped. And uh, thanks out there for listening. And talk to you next time. You're listening to Totally Radio. A different soundtrack.